Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Glad to have all of you with us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We've got a great panel lined up to uh, talk about a broad variety of issues uh, today. Uh, Before we get to everybody, a couple of quick notes. Um, We're going to be talking in just a moment about early voting, uh, about votes that have already been cast by absentee ballot. Um, and, uh, And before we get to that, you've continued to send me a lot of email, which I truly have said over and over again I appreciate enormously. But one of the things that you ask most frequently is this. You say, when I got my absentee ballot, there were instructions that I should fill it out and put it in an envelope, seal it, and send it back um, uh, uh, to the state. And you're saying there are no envelopes. And that is correct. Unfortunately, the Secretary of State's office had all of that printed up initially, and then they didn't put Uh, uh, those envelopes in. And so what they're asking everybody to do is simply fold the ballot in half. They say that your vote should not be seen through the paper when you fold it over and return it that way. A lot of you think that you're missing a step and are worried that your vote won't count. That is absolutely not the case. Uh, Any number of you have also written me to say you're very worried because you haven't gotten your ballot yet, although you uh, uh, sent away for it. And with 1.4 million requests for absentee ballots, the Secretary of State's office is using a fulfillment organization that is uh, making headway. They're getting votes, uh, ballots out. They say there will be no problem. People will get their ballots in plenty of time. So, I mean, that is the news on that front from the Secretary of State's office, and we can only hope that they're able to fulfill that part of the pledge. Okay, I just wanted to clarify that since so many of you have connected to, uh, with me to ask about that. And by the way, if you want to write to me, tell me how you're doing in the uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic, I've always, as I've said, appreciate hearing your stories and try to get back to you uh, as quickly as I can. Just send your emails to B-N-I-G-U-T, B-N-I-G-U-T, gpb.org. Okay, let's go ahead and get the show underway. Uh, Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us. It's Tuesday, her day for uh, being a partner of mine on this show. Tamar, thanks for being here today. Glad to have you with us again. Always great to be here. Are you doing all right? You holding up okay? You've got your new puppy, right? Your new puppy whose name I forgot. Her name is Winnie, but she uh, keeps waking in the night to bark at, at noises on the street. So I'm, I'm dragging a little bit this morning. Your producer <laughs> caught me yawning. So I'll keep it in touch for the show, I promise. <laughs> uh, yeah, what it, you know, maybe Winnie should be in a different room, but we don't mind a few barks here and there. <laughs> Thanks for being with us, Tamar. Uh, Professor Audrey Haynes, professor of political science at the University of Georgia, is back with us. She's one of uh, the A-team that uh, have been part of our show on days after primary days. We'll get back to that in a couple of weeks, I think, uh, Audrey. And, Audrey, uh, I heard you tell our producer, Tom Faust, or one of our panelists before the show, you've got your Applied Politics T-shirt on today. That's the program that you run that trains your students to go into careers in politics, right? 
That is absolutely right. We've been celebrating all of our um, senior graduates this year and some of our students who have graduated from law school and uh, graduate school. So if you follow us on Instagram, you can see all the great things that they're doing. All right. Thank you, Audrey. Brian Robinson, who is a former uh, communications director for former uh, Governor Nathan Deal worked for uh, uh, Congress Midland Westmoreland on Capitol Hill for a period of time and now has his own communications and uh, consulting business. Brian, uh, how are you doing with your, how's your daughter holding up in the middle of all this? She's like, what, three plus now? Very good, Bill. Yeah. She's doing all right. I mean, she's an introvert. Have we got you, Brian? Body. Yeah. Yeah, All right, I'm not hearing Brian Robinson. I hope we can connect with him in a minute. But we, I know we have State Senator. G- oh, are you there, I'm Brian? Here. Yeah, I'm here. Um, my, okay. uh, I'm not my hearing daughter. Brian. Uh, so let me introduce State. All right, uh, Tom Faust says he'll work on getting Brian. Uh, look, folks, <laughs> we're doing our best with this remote. Uh, broadcast of the show, uh, so I apologize for any glitches we have every now and then. Jen Jordan, state senator who represents uh, a big swath of Atlanta, northern part of the city, and then way up into Cobb County and all the way over up, I think, uh, Highway 19 is with us. How are you holding up, Jen, with your family sheltering in place? We're pretty good. I mean, I think the dogs are getting sick of us, but uh, other than that, you know, it's, it's, it's been nice, so... We've been lucky. <laughs> I'm really glad to hear you say that. All right. Um, let's move ahead. Let's start uh, with with a, uh, a little conversation about early voting in the state. We had our first day of in-person early voting yesterday. By the way, if you want to know where, where in your county you can early vote, I believe Sam Burmis-Dawes has posted a link on our social media that will allow you to uh, go to the Secretary of State's office, plug in the county you live in, and it will pop up with the uh, locations that are open uh, in the weeks leading up to the June 9th election. Uh, all that said, yesterday we are, it's reported that uh, the voting was relatively light, although at one point apparently Cobb County had waits of up to 70 minutes a lot of that, we're told, had to do with the fact that poll workers are essentially sanitizing equipment after it's been used, and so that slows down the process quite a bit. Um, so uh, you may anticipate that you'll wait longer than you normally would when you uh, go out uh, to vote. I'm curious, Jen Jordan, what are you hearing uh, up, up your way about how the early vote went. Have you gotten any anecdotal information about city of Atlanta and up into Cobb County? Yeah, I think Cobb County, uh, the lines were long, um, 30 to, you know, 45 minutes to wait. I think the biggest issue is um, because of the social distancing that is required between the different machines, you know, the various precincts were supposed to have, let's say they were supposed to have 20, you know, voting machines, and then they've had to to pare them down to, you know, five to 10. Um, So the capacity issues are really significant. Um, And then there have been precinct issues too, just just because of technological issues and capacity issues. So um, everybody just needs to be um, patient. And if they can vote by mail, that's exactly what they need to do. 
Uh, what we haven't heard at this point is any concerns, Audrey, and maybe they'll start coming in uh, as the vote continues about the new equipment that's in, in place. At least we, we haven't gotten any reports on, on particularly significant problems, Audrey. Well, I haven't heard any either, and I'll tell you that um, at the University of Georgia, at SPIA, we were very disappointed. I mean, we were planning on doing um, some research. We were going to have observers who were going to be looking at the interaction of voters with the um, the new voting machinery and, and a whole set of things that we were looking at, which have been postponed from November. But right now, I have not heard anyone, especially in my area, um, having any problems. Um, the one thing we have heard, and we've heard from um, some of the directors, in Oconee County, things have been going smoothly. They sent everyone in the county um, a, a voice message letting them know that they were going to be enforcing social distancing and that they should be prepared. Um, if there might be a wait, there, w- there were no waits, but they've been very proactive. And, you know, continuing from the uh, Secretary of State's office, they're really encouraging people to vote by mail, if, especially if they have gotten an absentee ballot and sent it in and requested their ballot that they should use it because when they actually if they show up and go, it takes a little bit of extra time if they, they, they're, um, you know, surrendering their ballot back. Yeah, that's one of the issues that the Secretary of State's office reported yesterday was people who had asked for an absentee ballot who came instead to vote. Uh, it, it slowed the process down, canceling out that absentee ballot. And the Secretary of State's office, at least, is urging you, be patient. If you haven't gotten your ballot yet, uh, uh, to t- uh, wait for it rather than showing up at a polling place. Um, Tamar, I really was wanting to talk to you about the early numbers we're seeing on uh, the early vote, not just from yesterday, uh, but uh, from uh, the early votes that have been cast by mail, the absentee ballots. And this comes from the Georgia Votes website, which has turned out tomorrow to be a very reliable uh, uh, site for uh, looking at data about the election. So far in the 2020 primary election, 415,752 people have voted. At the same time in 2016's primary, that number was 27,947. So the total turnout is uh, like 13, 1400% higher than it was in 2016. So far, about 42% of the people who have cast early ballots uh, voted Democratic. Uh, About 56% picked Republican ballots. And um, we know that 71% were wh- are white voters, 21% African-American, 56% are female, 44% are male. Um, and uh, as usual, 55% of those people who have already cast their ballots are 65 or older. Older voters continue to show up in bigger numbers. Tomorrow, what do you make of all that? I mean, it... <laughs> It's pretty darn amazing. I mean, it shows, first of all, the enthusiasm that we have for, for this year going into the presidential election. We have two um, two Senate races um, going on this year. Of course, one of them is not on the ballot. We're only talking about the, the David Perdue race that we're voting on now. Um, but it also shows just how extraordinary these times are with the, the coronavirus. And, and especially when you look at the numbers that, that Georgia votes crunched for absentee ballots, um, the numbers are even more stark than what we saw in 2016. Um, uh, for the 2016 primary, they said about 53,000 um, 
people applied to vote by mail. Right now, it's, it's almost 1.5 million. Um, so 2,663% higher. Um, and, and that's pretty darn amazing <laughs> to see just how quickly the Secretary of State's office has had to really pivot to that. Um, and my colleague, Mark Macy, wrote a, wrote a story yesterday about a special emergency ruling that, that allows these election officials to begin opening these absentee ballots earlier just to, to ease the processing of all of this. They can't actually start tallying until Election Day, but, but just to smooth the process and um, move it along, they are allowed to start opening the, the ballots now. Or sorry, eight days before. Well, Brian, that's it. Yeah, Brian, that's precisely what I wanted to uh, get you in the a loop on. Are we, have we got, Brian, have we got you back with us, Brian? We'd lost you for a couple minutes. No, I'm here. Can you hear me, Bill? Oh, good, good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, now I can All hear right. you. We were having trouble communicating with you a little earlier. Thank goodness you're with us, Brian. What I started to ask, uh, well, I'm not going to ask you. I was asking initially how your daughter, who is like three-plus <laughs> years old now, is doing during this pandemic. So go ahead and tell us, because we, we care about how people are doing personally in the middle of all this. Well, one thing that she has going for her, Bill, is that, like me, she's an introvert and a homebody. So the lack of interaction with a bunch of kids has not been <laughs> as devastating for her as I think it is for, for a lot of kids. But uh, I, I do <laughs> think uh, she is, she's, it, it took two months for her to ask, you know, can I take this back to school? Can I take this to school? So she's now realizing she's that her her schedule has been Ugh. disrupted and she's ready for some normalcy, as we all are, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're all we're all waiting for that. All right, so let, let's talk more about uh, uh, the early vote, Brian. I have been surprised, and I've been cautioned by a number of panelists over the last couple of weeks not to be that the turnout in absentee ballots is so much higher for Republicans than Democrats. 56% Republican ballots, 42% Democratic ballots. Why shouldn't I be surprised by that, Brian? Well, Bill, I do think that's changing somewhat. I think you saw Republicans requesting ballots early on in much higher numbers, and Democrats are closing that gap now, and it's much closer. And there are a lot more Republican voters' uh, ballots returned, but it's because they got theirs earlier. So I I do think that we are seeing closer to parity in the primary voting than what we have seen in the past. And so we'll see if this trajectory continues, Bill. That will be very concerning to me if the Democrat numbers continue to catch up and eclipse the Republican numbers. Because what I want to see is somebody in Republican politics is a stronger Republican uh, turnout just to show more enthusiasm on our side. Now, that said, there are a lot more exciting races on the Democrat side right now because you know they're picking candidates for two Senate races, whereas Republicans aren't. There's only David Perdue on this ballot and only Donald Trump on this ballot. So uh, I, I don't know how much we can glean from it. Democrats have a lot more going on than Republicans do. Well, wait a minute. I mean, first of all, thank you for reminding me. I was just looking at absentee ballots already turned in. Yes, thank you for reminding me about requests for ballots. Requests for ballots have just about equalized, as you point out. 47% have applied for Democratic ballots, Forty, almost 49% Rep- uh, uh, Republicans. So you're right, they are catching up. But, but Audrey, we do have some important Republican uh, uh, races on the ballot, 6th District, 7th District. Um, I mean, there is reason, Audrey, for Republicans to want to 
turn out and cast their ballot, isn't there? Yes, and traditionally they do. I would say that um, some of the more local state-level races are really driving some of the requests. I know in my area, um, you know, my choice of ballot was driven by a sheriff's election, right? So, you know, there, there's always those factors. You look at all of those. And, and, and I see, the, the viewers or listeners don't see it, but I see Jen has her hand up, and I know she wants to add something probably to complement what I just said. Jen? Yeah. I, it, well, I think it's important, too. You're looking at the um, numbers of absentee ballots that have been cast. Um, but one of the, the biggest things we need to remember, Fulton County, the largest really Democratic county in the state of Georgia and the most populous, um, they had major issues in terms of processing of applications and are still behind. I know three weeks ago, I know they had 135,000 applications in, and at this point, they've only processed 115,000. Um, and they're, you know, people think that they may even get up to as high as 200,000. So I don't think we can really kind of look at the ballots cast yet until all the absentee ballot applications have been processed. I um, mean, people have had an opportunity to turn them in, especially from the most populous Democratic county in the state. I think great point, and I I take that. I appreciate your uh, mentioning that. While you've got the ball, Jen, and then I'd love to get Tamara in on this as well, but what do you make of the potential here with this overwhelming number of absentee ballots that are likely to be cast, despite the fact the state election board said yes, uh, that uh, counties can begin processing these absentee ballots like a week plus ahead of Election Day, June 9th. I mean, it is possible, Jen, that we're going to wait days for results in some elections, isn't it? That's going to be a very frustrating experience for an awful lot of people who uh, not only are candidates but are concerned about the outcome of the election. I think we just need that to be our expectation right now. Um, I think what people want are um, safe, secure elections. Um, and if we start telling folks now, we can't expect like we normally do that Fulton County or Cobb County will have results immediately. Um, then when people have to wait a few days, um, that'll still be in line with what they expect. And, and we really do need to kind of um, give these election boards a little bit of grace in terms of what they're dealing with. This is a whole new system. And then you put on top of it the, you know, the COVID crisis and all the mail-in ballots. Um, everybody's just trying to do their best right now. Um, so I, I just think we just need to set um, expectations and, um, and really just kind of understand that, that we're all dealing with a lot. And, and you can see the messaging. Uh, tomorrow morning. Oh, sorry about that. You can see the messaging from the, the Secretary of State's office right now. They use terms like once-in-a-lifetime unprecedented emergency, you know, painstaking attempts to, to balance security and, and transparency. And, um, you know, I think they know that, that no matter what, they're going to get slammed by people who are either complaining about voter fraud because so many of these ballots are being conducted absentee, or you're going to get people who are talking about um, you know, voting rights problems and people's votes not getting counted properly. So I, I think they're, they're going to be in a tricky spot because this issue has become um, such a, such a um, tough one politically over the last couple of years, so politicized. So um, it's going to be tough no matter what. And like, uh, like Senator Jordan said, you know, add a, add a pandemic on top of it, it's going to add even more pressure to the situation. 
from the political science viewpoint, it is unprecedented. There are so many questions that we are going to be looking at. And um, one of them, you know, Brian can answer. Look at the a number of requested ballots and, and the voting that's taking place when really at the presidential primary level, it's pretty much not a very interesting contest. It's driven by a lot of local elections. And we haven't even seen the level of campaigning and mobilization. And I've seen two ads on television and the debates are on WebEx and things like that. And people are still uh, turning out. Plus, I, I would also say I thought it was very commendable that the Secretary of State's office sent out all of those requests, I mean, millions and millions of them to make it easier for people to make that request. And that tells us that when you do make voting easier, people are likely to take advantage of it. Ryan? Yeah, y'all are absolutely right about local elections driving some of this interest. I wasn't even thinking about that, which is ironic because I'm involved in some of those races that are very high profile. <laughs> you know, and you know, as far as why Audrey hasn't seen uh, too many commercials, one, she's in Athens, and there's really, you know, the closest election there for her is going to be the ninth district, which does dip into part of Clark County, um, and so there's not going to be as much where she is. But you, you are seeing a lot of cable stuff up in northwest Georgia for the 14th district here in the 7th and uh, none in the 6th uh, just yet because, you know, Karen Handel is the uh, presumed nominee, essentially, there, even though it's a big field, not going to be a lot of spending. And then, of course, in the 9th district up in northeast Georgia. So you are seeing a little bit of TV ads. You can see them on cable. And you're not going to see much on broadcast, one, because it's super expensive, and two, two months ago, every campaign's fundraising basically stopped. It, I mean, it just hit a, a brick wall. And so we're going to have a really skimpy campaign spending season from here through June 9th. So you're going to, you're going to see less, maybe less mail, less digital, less TV than what you would normally see. Yet we're still seeing record turnout. So it's extraordinary. It's really hard to, to Audrey's point to know what is moving voters what is working in an era where we can't spend enough money to reach a large electorate? Well, you know, Jen Jordan, uh, uh, Audrey makes a point on Brian seconds it that, you know, there aren't a lot of really exciting big races. Well, there, there are a couple. I mean, the Democrats have an interesting Senate race. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, but, you know, we're pretty much it's a foregone conclusion, basically, that Joe Biden is the Democratic presidential nominee. What's the impact? Not unnecessarily for June 9th, but moving toward November? And how does the energy build around Jill Biden's uh, uh, virtual visit, Jen, to Georgia on Thursday? She's going to be doing a virtual coffee with medical workers down in Albany, which has been so hard hit by the virus. She, of course, herself is a doctor. Then she's doing something with Atlanta teachers and at some point holding a campaign event. And I raise that question partly because there's been so much concern among Democrats about Joe Biden sort of being pinned down in his basement trying to get the message out. Um, what does an event like the Biden event being virtual mean, do you think, in terms of energizing people? I think the campaign's just trying to, to be connected or stay connected with people as much as they can. But the news cycle is being driven um, by Donald Trump every day in terms of what he's saying with respect to the pandemic, um, or how the crisis is actually being managed at the state level, too. 
And it's really almost impossible to kind of break out of that. And so really all they can do, you know, are kind of events like this where they can just stay connected to people um, and really kind of communicate with respect to what they would be doing or how they would manage, you know, the crisis versus what's going on. Because there's just no way. I mean, you, you wouldn't have enough money in the world to be able to kind of message over or to drown out exactly what's coming out of the White House. Um, so, you know, I think they're doing what they can. But what's interesting, though, to me is the number of, in terms of the applications for absentee ballot, the overwhelming number of people who did not vote in the 2016 primary. And, you know, folks may say, well, that's not that big of a deal. But primary voters, I mean, you have to be very intentional and you've got to really mm -hmm. want to vote um, with respect to, you know, a Democratic primary or a Republican primary to kind of show up for that. So I'm going to be watching, you know, like you said, how many ballots are actually returned with respect to the parties. Because for Democrats, this is, I mean, we have not had this. I mean, Republicans historically have done very well with absentee ballots. Um, and getting them back in. But for Democrats, this is just something we don't mm -hmm. see. All right. We, this is going to be fascinating to watch. And one of the things, tomorrow that's going to make it even more interesting is, and we've talked about it on the show a couple of times now, this internal poll that was conducted by a PAC that supports Governor Kemp that the AJC managed to get a hold of, which uh, shows that the race for November, the presidential race in November, as of May, is basically deadlocked between uh, 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 Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Biden shows up with 47% of support, 46 for Donald Trump. There's a 4% margin of error. But what's really interesting about the poll beyond the presidential race tomorrow is uh, this internal poll shows that David Perdue is leading John Ossoff by just 43 to 41 that, too, is in the margin of error. But there are a couple questions I want to ask, start with you about on this, tomorrow, and then I'll get the rest of the panel involved in this as well. First of all, at the same time that this poll shows a closer race than uh, Republicans may have expected uh, that Purdue was going to face in November, uh, the other thing that's fascinating to me about it is it pulls us off, but not Teresa Tomlinson, not Sarah Riggs, Amico, uh, it, the notion that they're being written off, I know the Tomlinson folks have been really frustrated by that, and I'm sure you've received communications from them about it. I have as well. Uh, but Tomlinson's campaign uh, to herself, Tomlinson herself said the other day, don't squander this opportunity. We've really got a chance to beat uh, David Perdue. And the Cook Report has actually moved that race from uh, likely Republican to leaning Republican. So why don't you start us off on that, Damar? Sure. Well, well, going into this primary, John Ossoff was was kind of the, the best known out of the, the three Democrats, you could argue, given his um, his run in the 6th District special election in 2017. He famously raised $30 million for that race. He started as a 29-year-old unknown and, and uh, came within about four points of, of winning there. And so I think Republicans were, were kind of eager to, to go up against him again because they, you know, they, they think they, they know the playbook to, to beat him. Uh, you talk to Tomlinson and they say, you know, she says, well, sure, everyone knows who John Ossoff is, but, but they still don't want to vote for him. And, and you know, his retort is that, um, you know, you're not even good enough to be pulled. So, so who knows at this point? But it, but it is pretty remarkable that at least in the, the eyes of um, you know, Republicans, that they don't see Tomlinson and, and Amico as a threat at this point. 
Well, and, and I would add um, to what Tamar said, if you watch the debate, if you watch the Democratic Senate debate um, and you watch what the uh, activity was, I think that her opponents thought that she was someone who was uh, kind of critical because a lot of the attacking um, and the strategic questions were going to Teresa Tomlinson. And so we're all in these bubbles, and there's been a, a lot of small, uh, uh, limited polling. So I think that, you know, they may not really be sure what's going on. I've seen a lot of buzz for Tomlinson lately. And I know that Amico has been really driving um, uh, in her emails. I mean, there's a lot of activity. And if you look at the ballot, too, you know, I'll say this about people who are, are voting um Amico's right there at the top, and it's a long list of candidates for people who are going in there and they're just voting for the Democratic candidate, not thinking about, you know, which one they really like. Tomlinson is at the bottom, and Amico is at the top, and Ossoff is buried in there because it is a long list of candidates. Brian, November's a long way off, and given, especially as we've said on the show several times already today, especially in this pandemic environment, there are so many variables that can affect all of the numbers that uh, are, we're seeing right now. Right, Brian? Oh, yeah. There's, just, there's a, t- a ton of things that plague into this, Bill. Yeah. Are you, are you thinking about anything, anything in particular? Well, no, Bill? just the fact that, yeah, Brian, I'm, con- I'm asking you as a Republican what you think when you see what appears right now to be uh, Purdue in a more vulnerable position than I think many Republicans thought he'd be. He's got a huge fundraising advantage over all of the Democrats combined. The Tomlinson campaign likes to point out that they've come to parity in the last cycle with uh, John Ossoff in their fundraising. But with all the advantages Purdue seems to have, including incumbency, at this internal poll by Republicans seems to show him more vulnerable than I think people would have thought. And I'm curious your reaction to that. Yeah. Let me start off, first of all, with with the poll. There's still some questions about it because some of the numbers in there were real outliers from recent polling we've seen from other bodies, some of it internal, some of it third-party polling. So we still need to see what the questions were. We need to see what the crosstabs were. So just let me raise that flag about that poll. But I talked to the Purdue people, and They fully understand that, yes, they've got the advantage of incumbency. They've got the advantage of a large war chest. They uh, are in a historically red state. But they acknowledge that the landscape has changed. I mean, you look at 2018, and you've got to acknowledge that anything can happen on Election Day. When it's one percentage point out of four million votes, there's no guarantee of one party having an advantage over the other. So they're expecting something really tight. And as far as a war chest goes and how tight it is right now, let's look forward out of this present moment where the Democrats are up on the air. They are running ads basically right now showing their African-American support. They're, they're sort of jockeying in, in that sector of the, the voting block. And David Perdue is not up on the air. He's not spending money to communicate with voters. Democrats are going to spend a lot of what they have on hand in the primary, particularly if they go to a runoff, getting them really close to November, spending money attacking each other. David Perdue is going to be able to consolidate uh, support. He's going to be able to raise more money and and preserve it and then have a deluge in uh, the fall uh, leading into the election. So 
he's still in the uh, pole position here. He's where you would want to be if you were in it. But look, there is no sitting on the sidelines thinking that they got this in the back. The Purdue people know they've got a fight. All right, let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show. We have a lot more to talk about because today we're focusing on our core mission here at Political Rewind. That's politics. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're back on Political Rewind. Uh, Professor Audrey Haynes, uh, Senator Jen Jordan, Tamar Hallerman of the AJC, senior reporter at the AJC, and Brian Robinson are on with me uh, today. Uh, Tamar, I want to talk, and again, I'll start it off with you. Let's talk about Stacey Abrams for a couple minutes, because what show about politics in Georgia would be complete without at least some conversation about Stacey Abrams? Uh, Mark, Mark Leibovich uh, Mark Leibovich, who is one of the New York Times' finest writers and political journalists, uh, had a piece in, in the uh, paper uh, today. And uh, the point of his story uh, was that, um, and well, I'll just read you uh, the first couple of uh, graphs of it. He says, uh, traditionally, prospective vice presidents were asked, if prospective vice presidential Candidates were asked whether they would like to be so-and-so's running mate. They typically follow some variation on the familiar dodge. They would say how flattered and humbled they were to be mentioned before claiming they were not really thinking about getting selected. Not at all. Not one bit. In other words, they must be reluctant or at least act reluctant. But that custom is fading in this strange lockdown of a VP stake season. Prospective running mates appear more and more to be shredding their fake reluctance or not bothering to shred their ambition at all. Miss Abrams, who barely lost the Georgia governor's race in 2018 and whose name has seemingly been bandied about as a potential Democratic running mate ever since, has repeatedly flouted this first rule of non-campaigning for the vice presidency. So, um, so uh, Tamar... It, this is, continues to be a fascinating uh, story. Uh, Stacey Abrams being very, very candid about saying, I think I'd be a terrific candidate for vice president. Uh, to talk about how you think. Oh, I should add to that. The Washington Post published a piece over the weekend saying that uh, uh, what she's doing is complicating Joe Biden's decisions on who he wants to choose. Go ahead. You, you, you take this up tomorrow. Sure. I mean, it's creating an awkward situation in that, you know, if if Joe Tomorrow Biden do I have not... you? Hello, can you hear me? Um, are you all back? Can can you all hear me again? Uh, Jim, Jim, what you. do you make of the fact? That, what do you make of the? Okay, you've always heard me. Um, I'm terribly sorry to my panelists and to all of our listeners. I have no idea why we're struggling so much today. We haven't had this problem too often in the past. Jen, Jen, what do you make of? Uh, of uh, the fact that she has been, Stacey Evans has been so out front in saying, yep, I'd be a great choice for vice president. You know, it's been interesting and, and really unorthodox. And 
what's been interesting is to see kind of the press coverage because it's gone, you know, there have been these glowing kind of pieces on her, and then you'll have some other pieces that'll say this is complicating things, and then some pieces that aren't so glowing. Um, so it's really just been playing out at a very high level. Um, but at the end of the day, she's really kind of changing, you know, the narrative and how people approach it for good, bad, or ugly. And so, um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see exactly what happens with respect to Biden's choice. And, and I think, the, uh, oh, sorry about that. And I, I think, you know, on, on the one hand, this certainly helps get her out there even more, this kind of unabashed campaigning for the role. But it also does set up an, an awkward situation for, for Biden, because if he doesn't pick her, then then he risks disappointing a lot of activists in the party who maybe wanted somebody, uh, you know, a, a younger woman, a, a woman of color to be a part of this, too. So it's also interesting to see just how much, um, she, you know, Abrams and, and her playbook are kind of inspiring other figures to, to kind of also state their interests publicly. We saw Susan Rice, who was President Obama's national security advisor, say she'd be interested. We've even seen Elizabeth Warren say she'd accept the offer. And, and uh, maybe it'll lead to, to a permanent change in the way that, that this, this sort of shadowy campaigning for vice president that we used to see, um, what that looks like going forward. I would also add in there, excuse me, <clears throat> lost my voice for a moment, but, you know, Biden has this. Uh, context and the big context is South Carolina and the endorsements he got from the black community and the fact that he has already said that he is going to choose a woman. He, he you know, he's, he has boxed himself in a little bit himself. Um, and so, you know, if you take that, that calculus of a woman of color, uh, you know, there is a set of women that he may be looking at. Now, how that fits into the general election, you know, we can't be sure. No presidential vice presidential nomination pick is the end all. It doesn't solve all your problems and it doesn't get you to where you want to go. So, you know, whatever happens, happens. But this is new, it is interesting. Women who are ambitious are no longer being coy about it. There's not that so, everyone always knew people wanted to be the vice president, even though they were saying, I'm not sure, but they were doing it for political reasons. The only thing is when you, when you don't get it at the end, that can, that can hurt you a bit, you know, especially if you look like you really wanted it badly and they said no. So, you know, obviously Stacey Abrams is a risk taker and she is doing something more novel and as Tamar said, sort of setting the standard for others. So we'll see what happens. It'll be a big news story when he chooses. Brian, I've said on the show a couple of times and I'd love to get your take on this, that uh, the people who are uh, sort of uh, either poking fun at Stacey Abrams for being so out front in pursuing the possibility of being the VP candidate or are criticizing her for it. I, I think it's easy to forget that when she ran for governor in 2018, she laid out a whole new playbook for how she thought she could win this race. Uh, suddenly saying there are more progressive voters in Georgia than the Democrats have given uh, credit for in the past. I'm going to pursue them. I'm going to get them to the polls. Uh, you know, there were people then who thought that she was not going to have a great deal of success, and yet she proved that her own vision of how to move forward could be pretty darn successful, even though she lost that race. So it seems to me personally, Brian, that it would be a terrible mistake to just sort of criticize Stacey Abrams for this campaign and dismiss it as being somehow frivolous or not potentially successful. What do you make of that, Brian? 
fortune goes to the bold, Bill. That's what I see. And I think Stacey Abrams has proven that time and time again. It's a conversation that I've had with Senator Jordan, uh, actually talking about Stacey Abrams and just sort of the force of nature that she is. And I continue to stand in awe of how someone who ran for an office in a state became the national phenomenon that she became when she actually lost that race. And the way that she has been able to effectively plant in the nation's uh, conscience that somehow the election was stolen from her, even though there's no evidence that backs that up in, in any possible way. I mean, she's pulled off a tremendous accomplishment, regardless of whether you're a Republican or Democrat in Georgia and how you see her record. So never count her out, man. I mean, she, she is wicked smart. I mean, to grow up in poverty in Mississippi and to end up at Yale Law School, you're, by definition, an extraordinary person. So uh, she's unlike anybody else in politics. I mean, she breaks so many molds, doesn't she? I mean, if you, if you just go down the list of attributes about her, that you, you can't ever count her out. Now, here's the thing, though, Bill, and I, just to take it the next step, the message against Joe Biden is going to be that he is mentally slipping, that he's you know, sleepy Joe, that he's confused, that the that age is catching up with him in a way that is notable when you watch him on TV. There's going to be an onus on him and on his staff around him to have someone who meets the credibility threshold, somebody who's had national experience, foreign experience, legislative experience on the national level, uh, that – that Stacey would – she would be credible if she had won the election in 2018. She had two years of being governor under her belt, but she doesn't, and I think that's a huge liability for her in this scenario. That doesn't mean she's not extraordinary. It doesn't mean she's not smart. It doesn't mean she wouldn't do a good job. I just think that given the number of highly qualified and, and smart women uh, candidates that Biden has to choose from, there's going to be a drive amongst those around him to get someone with more experience. So uh, before we take a break, which we got to do pretty quickly, Jen Jordan, I want to give you, since you're the Democrat on our panel today, the last word on this. I, I take Brian's point has been made by any number of people that she doesn't have. Stacey Abrams doesn't have the national, international credentials to take on this role. But Jen Jordan, I remember in uh, 1992 when uh, Bill Clinton was heavily criticized for choosing another Southerner to be his running mate when he picked Al Gore and uh, political pundits across the country said, how foolish, you can't have two candidates from the same region uh, on the ticket, it'll never work. So, Jen Jordan, you never know what the chemistry and the dynamic is going to be between a presidential and a vice presidential candidate. Yeah, and let's Let's be clear. I mean, this this crisis has really changed the calculation, too. Pre-COVID-19, um, the Biden campaign, their main thing may have been about um, energizing progressive voters and energizing young voters to get out. And Abrams may have been kind of at the top of the list. But then when this crisis took over, um, what you're looking for in terms of a number two with respect to what the voters want, I mean, experience. Um, you know, somebody who can, who, who's done it, who's been there, who knows how to get the job done, um, kind of a known quantity. It's a very different kind of calculation. And so it, that's what's been interesting. It's not that Abrams um, has never been considered or wouldn't be considered. It's just that 
who is the right person at the right time. And things actually may have changed um, pre and post COVID. All right, let's do this. Uh, thank you all for that. Um, we've got to get to our final break of the show. When we come back, we've got a few minutes left to tackle yet a few more issues. We'll be right back. We've got just about uh, five plus minutes left on today's show, and I want to use like 30 seconds of them to apologize to all of you out there listening and to our panel as well uh, for the technical glitch we had a while ago. You know, our engineers have done a phenomenal job allowing us to do our show by remote for more than uh, two months now. Uh, And every now and then some glitch as simple as a button sticking on a uh, control board uh, creates problems for us. So I'm, I'm terribly sorry that we had an issue for a little bit of time there. Um, Let's get in at least uh, one final issue. And Tamar, let me start with you on this. Um, the, the, The polling that we're seeing continues to show that Brian Kemp is being held accountable for starting to reopen Georgia and that it's an issue that people are still uncomfortable about. Now, he's not on the ballot for two more years. But I think the question is, to what extent will this affect other races uh, in as we move forward toward Election Day in November. Do we think that other Republicans on the ballot are going to either uh, uh, win some votes or lose them based on what happens in the months ahead? There are two Republicans that I'm really looking at when it comes to kind of the impact of the coronavirus and for two different reasons. The first is Kelly Leffler, his his pick for uh, Johnny Isaacson's Senate seat. She's not on the ballot until November, but she's been under fire for weeks now for her stock trades related to, um, you know, right after her uh, getting a private senator's only coronavirus briefing. And, and you know, her, her Democratic opponents, as well as Doug Collins, have really um, kept the pressure on her, and it does not seem to be going away. So I'm going to be watching that closely. The other person I'm going to be watching is is David Perdue, and mainly just because he's tied himself so closely to President Trump. And because of that, I think um, however Trump does in November, I think will be in no small part based on on how the economy is doing and, and how the corona, how people perceive his coronavirus response. So I think how people vote on Trump is how they're going to vote on David Perdue. Audrey? I, I think Tamara is absolutely right. Uh, that would be exactly what I would say, too. And, you know, this is going to be a very interesting election, and it will have some down-ballot consequences. I mean, a lot of people are talking about the election and calling it like the Teflon election, that we're so polarized that, you know, the Democrats are, are going to vote for anybody but Trump, and, and the Republicans are going to continue to support their candidate, and, and nothing will change, and it'll be about turnout and mobilization. But... The consequences of this pandemic aren't going to have an effect. And, you know, I think they may move a little bit of that polarization if you are affected by it. So we really have to watch and see what the consequences are. And it could affect everyone, uh, especially those who are in power. Uh, uh, Brian and Jen, I want to give you a quick chance on this, too. Brian, why don't you go first? Uh, I'm sorry, Bill. What was the question? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Jen Jordan. Jen Jordan. <laughs> this yeah, is why sorry, we no, don't sorry. want Brian Robinson doing the show from his house. Jen Jordan, what's your take on how the coronavirus, the success or the failure that Brian Kemp has in opening up the state is going to have on candidates moving forward? 
look, I think it could have a significant um, impact, but, but let's understand this isn't just kind of a one-off. I mean, we're going to be dealing with this, I mean, through the election. So things are warmer now. I mean, we understand folks are outside, so transmission levels may be lower. There's all this kind of stuff that may make people think that things are okay and kind of turn back to normal. And then we head into the flu season and we get walloped again, right about the time that, you know, it's November and we have another election. Um, so I think it's important that we need to kind of watch the polling and kind of see how people are reacting. But, but this definitely isn't kind of a, you know, he opens and then we can tell one way or the other. I think this is basically going to be people um, evaluating constantly up until November. Yeah. And look, I, I need to ask you Brian, one more quick question. Yeah, go ahead, Brian. Brian Kemp's not on the ballot this this November, but Donald Trump is. And I do think that Donald Trump's uh, fortunes in Georgia and in other parts of the country will depend on the results of his fight against the coronavirus. Uh, and if there is economic growth in the second half of the year, like the Federal uh, Reserve Chairman suggested on 60 Minutes, if we seem to be on the right trajectory, a lot of what's happening today in May is not going to be relevant. Uh, what's going to be relevant is what's happening in September and October. Have we returned to some sense of normalcy? Are people less scared? Are people less anxious? And do they feel like the country is on the right track? So I don't think Brian Kemp's performance is going to make a big difference, even in Georgia. I think it's all going to come down to Trump, and that will have a huge implication for David Perdue, but also have a huge implication for Karen Handel, uh, the nominee in the 7th District as well. Um, Trump will be who brings you up or brings you down. Jen Jordan, I've got like very little time, like a minute plus. You're, uh, do you have a date yet uh, for re, re, uh, going back into session? I know that uh, the uh, lieutenant governor was looking at June 15th. The speaker was talking about June 13th. Do you know when you're going to be going back into session now? No clue. Um, they're supposed to be working it out, and um, I guess we'll, we'll all know at some point. Well, I want to invite you to come back soon because you're on the Appropriations Committee in the Senate, and we really need to hear your thoughts on where the heck this state is headed with a budget that you've got to have together in time for the fiscal year to start in July. So we'll look forward to uh, talking about that again on Political Rewind. Uh, that's it. We're completely out of time. Again, my apologies for the technical glitch. Audrey Haynes, Brian Robinson, Tamar Hellerman and Jen Jordan, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks to all of you for joining me today for Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. See you again tomorrow. Take care and please stay healthy.